0: Hi folks, it's Kevin. I just wanted to say a brief word before the podcast begins. When I started Season 2 of Sascapes, one of the stories I wanted to feature in the series was that of the 60s scoop. Now if you're not aware of this rather dark time in Canadian history and culture, I hope by the end of these four episodes you will be. From the early 1960s through the late 1980s, there was a mass removal of Aboriginal children from their families into the child welfare system, and in most cases, without the consent of their families or bands. So an estimated 20,000 were scooped up, hence the name Sixty Scoop. Well, This is the first of four conversations I had with four individuals who were taken from their families as children. Now, they are sad stories, true, but... Well, there are also stories of strength, courage, cultural pride, and, well, maybe most importantly, forgiveness. Well, I feel very honored to have had the opportunity to sit and listen to these stories, and I believe we have much to learn from them. Dr. Raven Sinclair is my guest for this episode. Now, on to the podcast. You're listening to Sascape's a podcast featuring the stories of arts, culture, and heritage in Saskatchewan. Raven Sinclair, thank yes. you for joining me. Thank you. Um, from
1: the beginning, you're from you're originally from the Treaty Four area. Yes, I'm from Gordon's First Nation. Well, that's where my mother was from. My dad, um, if he had lived to uh, reapply for his status, would have belonged to Kawakatus, which is the neighboring uh, First Nation. But in, in our family, you know, historically the Crees, they we belong to their mother's band, and so we all belong to gordon's first nation which is uh, down south yeah okay and so the town the town near, nearby yeah. oh the town ta- oh that i grew up the town nearby gordon's is, is punichai okay right? uh, i didn't i didn't grow up there i've never lived on reserve
0: okay
1: um i was actually born in a little town uh just across the border called Oyan Alberta. oh right <laughs> yeah my father was a farm laborer so he went down the highway from town to town. So two of us are born. We're born in Oyen, and then two were born in the next town in serial Alberta. And uh, um, so that's yeah. We were sort of born in different places. I think a couple of my siblings were born on reserve. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, but uh, so where where was I raised? Not on reserve. I uh, uh, so I was born in Alberta. Then when my mother, my father passed away, my mother moved us all to saskatoon within a couple of years and um because her sister lived here and i think she probably needed the support of her sister rather than taking in laundry in a small town strange foreign town in alberta Mm. and uh then um we came into contact with child welfare fairly shortly after we got back to saskatoon now there were nine of you at this point there were nine of us yeah and and then we i believe we lived with my auntie and she had five children, so there were there was a huge pack no of. No
0: kidding! And where did you place in the family of nine? Uh,
1: I was the youngest. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I was okay. the young. I'm the youngest child of my dad. My mother subsequently had two more children, um, who are yeah just two and three or four years younger than me. Um, yeah. So we came into contact with the child welfare system within a couple of years, and. I remember being in foster care. I don't have a sense of how long it was. It was too long, you know, um, because I have, you know, I have some memories of the abuse and the physical and the sexual abuse. And then all of a sudden, one day I was, uh, I was, it was on my birthday, actually, my fifth birthday, I was taken to this new shiny house in what is now Richmond Heights. And, which was at that time at the edge of the city. So, so what it was, was a brand new suburb. What was that day like? Somebody just shows up at the door? Or? Well, what happened was um, we were treated like little animals in the foster home. And so all of a sudden I was put in these, you know, nice clothes And I was in the kitchen. I was allowed to sit in the kitchen at the table, which I never had before. So I was quite nervous something strange was going on here. And my foster mother was being very nice to me, which was also, you know, very anxiety-provoking because she was a very nasty woman.
0: Mm.
1: She quite enjoyed, um, you know, hitting us and beating us. Um, And she gave me milk and cookies and, you know, it was like this was just too weird for me. I I was very fearful because I knew something was up and she insisted I eat these. So I ate these milk and cookies. And I think what it was, was that she was trying to present an appearance to a social worker that was coming over to take me. Mm -hmm. And my next sort of snippet of memory is being in the social worker's car with all of these presents around me and balloons. And I knew they were mine, but, but it's, I hadn't opened them so I didn't, I didn't know so again I think that was a little bit of a, you know, appearance for the adoptive family mm-hmm. you know that here's this child with all these gifts and you know looking all dressed up and so on anyways uh, so then I remember being in this house and being introduced to these people and you know it was very different very, it was a big house uh, a sprawling bungalow up on the up on the riverbank out in Richmond Heights. And uh, and that's where I suddenly stayed. And, yeah, that's how it happened.
0: So you would have seen your mother, the last memory of your, seeing your, your own mom?
1: The last memory was at some point before we were apprehended, because I also remember the day that we were apprehended.
0: Now, how much notice had your mom had that this was going to happen?
1: She didn't get any notice. No, so notice. they just showed she, up at the door? Well, the police came to the door because she she was uh, she was off with her sister somewhere, and because there were so many of the kids, the older ones took care of the younger ones. So mm. we were on our on our own. Uh, she was off doing something; I'm not sure what. And uh, the police came and apprehended us, and took us to Kilburn Hall, which at that time was a children's receiving home. And then from there, we were all placed in foster care. You know, as I understand it. Um, you know, we stayed there for I think it was, you know, maybe not too long, a couple few months and all of your siblings went right, or just
0: the younger ones. All of us were put into foster all care. All nine of you?
1: Yeah. But I believe that my the older ones either ran away or ran back home fairly soon. Okay. Because I was the oldest of the three of us three younger ones that um that was placed for adoption. Mm-hmm. So I was five, and then my younger sister was also placed for adoption, and and the youngest, the youngest boy, and I think he might have been apprehended at birth, if not shortly shortly after.
0: When you were in foster home, were you allowed to have any
1: contact with each other? Um, well, I was placed with one of my sisters, so not the sister that's next older than me, but the the one that's you know. Uh, actually, she was the second youngest sibling, second youngest girl. And so she was two siblings mm-hmm. older than me. Mm-hmm. And then in the house next door were the two that were in between the two of us in age. Um, so I had contact with my sister that was in the house with me. We sort of clung together for support. Um, but we weren't allowed to speak to our siblings that lived in the house next door. And they weren't allowed to speak to us. And my sister said that, you know, one day I just went marching out to, to go and see them and she wouldn't let me. And I got really angry at her because, you know, of course, I blamed her for not right. letting me. And she said, no, I was just saving you from a beating right. because uh, we, we weren't allowed any contact with them. What was life so, like in the foster home? Well, it was brutal. Yeah. I, I you know, I think I just think thankfully when, when you experience trauma as a child, you block out of most of the painful things. I do remember being spanked regularly. And I I just remember the sort of general sense of, of fear that I carried. And, you know, my sister uh, was older than me, of course, about four years older than me. So she was a lot more aware, and she said it was really just hell on earth. We didn't eat with the family. We got different food. They, you know, they were very racist towards us. Um, And then the sexual abuse happened, and the mother knew that the sexual abuse was going on. And there's some specific incidents that we both remember that were indications that she was fully aware and condoned that behavior in her son was 12 and uh yeah it was it was a really disgusting place and you know but then when i have those memories of the day that i was adopted it, it you know she would she was very sort of manipulative because she would put on an appearance for the social worker right so you know they would come and everything would be great we'd probably be sitting in the living room or something of this teeny small house on the west side um but you know, she would make it look as if we were being treated well when, when we weren't. And you know, so so happily, I was I was adopted and placed um, on my birthday, which is in the early fall. My sister unfortunately had to stay there for another, I believe it was about eight months, and she said it was horrible with, with without me, but also uh, just the abuse and the and the violence, yeah, uh, the abuse on on many levels, yeah. So yeah, that's what I remember about the foster home, you know. And so when I look at, um, you know, the recent uh, report that came out a few years ago, uh, it it doesn't seem to have changed very much. You know, Indigenous children, I think, are so vulnerable in foster care, and you know, what do you do other than have twenty four hour surveillance on these people? Right. But at that time, you know, so many homes weren't screened, and people would people would say, "Oh yeah, yeah, we'll take care of these kids, and we'll do a good job," and. And they'd agree to that, but then what happened behind closed doors was a very different matter. And uh, and the story after story, I would say that the majority of adoptees uh, would have stories of foster care that are really uh, just.
0: Hey, it's Kevin. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. Just a quick reminder that the Sascapes podcast is available for free on your favorite podcast app, or you can stream it from your browser. Check out the show notes for the link on the sascapes homepage, you'll notice something new under the logo called sascapes plus you can't miss it there's a big button saying support with a heart icon next to it i'd love it if you could click on that button and help keep this podcast series going Terrible. terrible so the family you adop- you were adopted into was a dreadful scenario as well
1: no not at all not at, not at all, all. Not at all. No. Um, yeah no it was uh, as a beautiful house my father was a uh, he was a professor and theologian at the University of Saskatchewan and mm-hmm. my mother was uh, had a degree in nursing so she was a psychiatric nurse mm-hmm. and I was adopted into a family that had uh, two older boys and an older sister. Although my sister is fairly close in age to me, and so uh, we were we were what was called artificially twinned. So even though she's white and I'm obviously indigenous, um, my mother liked to dress us the same and and yeah, sort of treat us as if we were twins, which was really ridiculous because uh, you know it was probably cute, but. It was pretty ridiculous because, <laughs> because our lives were very different. We certainly weren't twins in, in any sense of the word. Right. I think my sister had a very hard time with my adoption. And uh, in some respects, maybe still does. <clears throat> it's, it's hard to say, but uh, she hasn't had, had an easy time of it. What was your understanding as a child
0: as to why you were taken from your family? Well,
1: family. I was given, you know, I was given the, the standard line that, um, you know, your, your family couldn't take care of you. And so they made the best decision for you. And so here you are with us and we're going to be your forever and ever family. Did you buy it? Oh, I fell for it hook, line and sinker. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't actually discover until I re- reunited with my birth family and my mom. And I point out, asked her, you know, what happened? And she said, well, they just took you. And I didn't sign any papers, and she said about a year later, I got a notice in the mail that you were being adopted, and I had to go to court. And uh, she said, so I went to court on that day, and, uh, yeah, I remember that day as well. Did she? By that time, she was a stranger to me.
0: Now, this this I'm hearing Mm -hmm. already in the other people that I've spoken with.
1: She wanted me. She was opposed to the adoption, but they just pushed it through. And they actually asked me, you know, at the age of six, if I wanted to live with her or if I wanted to live with this family, this only family that I had known now for, you know, at least a year or more. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so logically, I said my family. So I didn't know her anymore, you know, as a, as a child, a year, is a lifetime. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so. How much contact, if any, did you have with your birth family when you were in your adopted parents' home, were you none,
1: none at all? Ever? I didn't see them for twenty to, for twenty years. So I came out to Saskatoon when I was twenty-six. So twenty-one years. Uh, other than that one moment in court, and uh, I, came, I found them in in uh, ni- nineteen eighty. Six, I came out for a visit in 87, and then I moved out back to Saskatchewan. I was living in Ontario at the time. I moved back to Saskatchewan in 88, specifically to spend time with my family mm-hmm. and to get to know them and, and repatriate.
0: Were they all still in the province? They were all still in the province. Uh, yeah, uh. They,
1: and they thought I was living in Germany because the year after I was adopted, my father went on sabbatical uh, in West Germany, and so we moved there, and that's where I started elementary school. And they somehow knew this, maybe through the social worker. And so my sister, my oldest sister, said that she took German lessons in high school because she was planning to go over there to find me. <laughs> well,
0: she's <So>, got <laughs> German in her.
1: Yeah, so we can, few, huh? we can communicate in German. If
0: <laughs> do you know German?
1: I do, yeah. Oh, okay. Ambition, yeah.
0: Right. Um, what was the day like when you reconnected with your birth mom?
1: Oh, yeah, that was an interesting day. I, I actually reconnected with my younger sister first. So, uh, you know, here's an interesting twist to the story. So my father was a theologian and professor at, uh, at St. Andrews at the University of Saskatchewan, and, her, and my younger sister's father was also a theologian. United, the United Church was very involved in the Adopt Indian Métis program. And so my father actually taught her father in university, And as children, after our adoptions, you know, we were in the same sort of social circles and we played together and spent time together, but our parents didn't know that we were siblings and we didn't know that we were siblings. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And so um, when now, so she has a different father, so she's not a Sinclair by birth, right? right? Um, But her partner at the time is, is a distant cousin of mine through my father's side, right? And so what happened was um, I was in Toronto working for uh, the administrative office of uh, Aski Nation, which is 39, and um, I was talking to one of the researchers who's, you know, incidentally from Saskatchewan, and she said, "You, you know, you should you should connect with your family because you're kind of dis- just displaced here," and uh, and I said, "I don't, I wouldn't know how to start," and she said, "Well, you're you're a Sinclair." Yeah. She said, "That's a really common name out there." She <laughs> said, "You know, Jim Sinclair is the president of the, at the time, Métis non-status Indians in Saskatchewan." She said, "Send him a letter." So I did, and eleven days later, my youngest, my younger sister, who had been adopted, called me because her partner at the time was Jim Sinclair, who is who was my dad's cousin. So you know, a cousin uncle of mine was his. Uh, she was, she was with. One of his nephews, right? so one of one of my cousins on on my dad's side. And uh, she called me up and said, uh, "You better sit down." <laughs> the stranger goes up, So I sat down and she goes, "I'm your sister." And I went, "Oh my God." And my first question was, "Is Mom alive?" And she said, "Yes." and it's it's funny because it's that's all I wanted to know you know i I love my siblings, and i you know i i I miss them and long for them, but it was most important that my mother was still alive and she said yes she's she's alive and and so we talked for quite a long time on the phone, and she told me a little bit about her experience of reconnecting with the family because for her it was uh there were some really positive things about it, but there were some challenges too, you know. My sister and I were raised, and my youngest brother as well, we were raised in uh, in United Church families, so, you know, really upwardly mobile. Uh, we had a lot of advantages. A very white Anglo-Saxon Protestant context. And, and my family was not raised that way. They were, you know, they struggled with poverty, and my family's... You know, my fa- my Sinclair's are very, very smart. My family are very, very intelligent people. You know, but at the same time, confronted with poverty and um, and just sort of the whole culture of the west West Side inner city of Saskatoon, and um, and so there was, I think, a real a culture clash for us. It was fairly shocking, maybe in in some respects, because um, neither of us had ever been exposed to. Uh, to poverty, you know and so um, yeah there were some there was some challenges for both of us and uh, and for my siblings as well, you know, because um, I think sometimes you know they might have thought that we were snooty or something, but it wasn 't that it was just for us, I think it was about reconciling our our socialization, our way of the way we had been trained to view the world with the reality that. That was a pretty isolated picture, <laughs>
0: right? Because yours
1: <laughs> was wanted. narrow, narrow and insulated, and that you yeah. know the spectrum of human life in in, in Saskatchewan and Canada as well. Mm-hmm. There is a huge range, right? So we don't live in mansions or anything, but but uh, you know we also didn't uh, suffer extreme poverty, and so for both of us, you know, it was just a process of understanding that the, there is there is a lot more diversity out there in the world, and that you know. Uh, and that our our roots, my roots are are much different than what I was, the way I was socialized, you know, than say my sibling, my adoptive siblings' roots are, yeah. And uh, so I came out um, the following year. Uh, oh, I talked to my siblings, my other siblings, shortly after that, at least a few of them, and that was pretty amazing too. Um, I just I remember in particular getting on the phone with my oldest sister and you know I think in terms of genetics that's one of the most significant things that you you get to experience when you're an adoptee and you repatriate is suddenly being in the presence of people that look like you and maybe even act like you the idiosyncrasies that you know that that arise out of out of genetic similarity and so getting on the phone with my sister was such an interesting experience because we had the same voice. And then meeting her in person, you know, we had the same pictures on the walls and, and we listened to the same music. And it was, it was so amazing you know, to have that connection. And it's the same with all of my siblings and even lots of my cousins and uncles and aunties. There's it's. I don't think it's as marked with many of them, but there's there's something there. You know, there's that, there's that recognition at such a deep, deep level of of something in you that you see mirrored in other people.
0: So, yeah. on a cellular level, we are yeah. more than our environment.
1: Oh, right? definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. 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 So and that was so interesting because, I mean, she's, my older sister's five years older than me, and yet, so we're not twins, and yet, you know, what it tells me is that there's something about our, our cellular, our genetic makeup that, you know, we manifest certain things in the world, and there's certain things that we like, and, and maybe for her and I, some of those genetic markers are similar, and so, you know, same, similar taste in music similar you know, ways of being in the world, even mannerisms, inflections in the voice. The only difference is she's a vegetarian and I'm a carnivore. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not going to change.
0: All right, all right. <laughs> so um, the day you were all together, were you all together for the first
1: time um, at any point? Yes. Well, when I decided to come out for a visit in 1987, I believe, 86 or 87, I can't quite remember. Um, So I flew flew out to Saskatoon, and there was a whole bunch of them at the airport. So most of my siblings and some, um, maybe a cousin and an auntie and uncle and my mom were all there. And I just remember getting off the plane and seeing, you know, this little crowd of brown people down there. And it was very, uh, it was quite a significant moment in my life. Well, you know what happened? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I say that, but you know, I'm sitting here, sort of physically, viscerally remembering it, and yeah. it's like, ooh, it was huge. Yeah. I, I don't, don't really even have the words to explain that feeling of. Don't know if there is one. Yeah, I don't know that there is. Um, but well, you know, one of the things that happens when you're adoptee, an adoptee, especially if you're indigenous in a white family. Because it was that the whole the thing has existed within this culture of silence, you know, we I, I didn't see another indigenous person really until like grade 11 mm. I see the occasional street person. Uh, there weren't as many people in urban centers. And we lived in, you know, we lived in Toronto and Kingston and there just wasn't the urban population. So my exposure was so limited. And so I, you know, I grew up in this void in this sort of cultural and cultural and identity void in terms of my indigeneity, and so I never, you know, in the world around me, I didn't have any of those sort of mirrors of who, who of who, Not, no mirrors that reflected my identity as a, as a Cree child, um, and so to suddenly, you know, without without any preparation, I should have been more prepared, but suddenly without any preparation to encounter my family, my brown family, um, was. I mean, it was beautiful. It was, it was wonderful. It was also very shocking and very tumultuous, emotionally and psychologically tumultuous for me. And I think that, you know, I think that happens for lots of people initially. And, uh, yeah.
0: And when you saw your mom?
1: Oh, I just cried. Yeah, I just hugged her and cried. And I was surprised at how small she was. Mm -hmm. Just teeny tiny and, uh, but I, I recognized her i recognized her for sure i remembered her and you can't
0: reinvent that that bond that one would naturally have with a mother had you stayed with your mom yeah. right i mean this is yeah. you're getting to know a stranger as, yeah. you, as you
1: said did you yeah. had you well you know that's true but at the same time you know i i was with my family until i was 4 so those are mm. really you know in terms of psychological theory those are really really significant for sure early developmental stages. And I used to wonder why I was so resilient because, you know, I'd, uh, things would happen, like I was bullied and, and tormented almost daily at school because I was a brown kid, right? But I was, a little, I was a little bit feisty. I had this sort of inner feistiness. And at the core, even though it was devastating and, you know, led to some pretty significant psychological issues as a teenager and young adult, I still had this f- sort of fundamental... Core, core of strength and the prevailing message it, within that strength was that you know you're, you're wrong about me mm-hmm. I, I'm not those names. I'm not what those things that you're saying about me and and I believe I feel you know within me very strongly that it's because I was with my family for those first four and some years and because of that that acceptance that unconditional love, uh, that nurturing, um, you know, I was part of a happy pack of lots of kids and everybody had my back. And I remember that sensation of my siblings just taking care of me. And I had a hard time keeping up because I was younger and might have been sort of a pesky little toddler and that sort of thing, but they always took care of me. And, and we, you know, we had that sort of freedom and liberation to play and, and do things that kids do which i didn 't have after my adoption, I had to be socialized in a very sort of you know waspy with Victorian roots kind of approach to to childhood,
0: but when you came to your adoptive parents but, and said i being when when you were being bullied, yeah. did they have your back
1: no, no they had they carried the belief they didn 't understand I mean you know my dad understood years later when he sort of took some time to critically analyze it, but they didn 't understand that that they believed that Canada was not a racist country. They believed they didn't understand anything about being a racialized person. So when I encountered obstacles and difficulties, they just assumed it was something that I was doing. So, uh, you know, a blaming the victim sort of mentality that, and, and, you know, the the Protestant sort of ethics would, would emerge. They would say things like, you know, just be nicer and just work harder and be more friendly and, you know, so as if I had to change something because, right. in order to change, you know, my environment. But I mean, the, the, the issue is so much bigger than that, right? And uh, we're in, su- in such a racially divided country. You know, people have to stop believing this myth because it's all it is. It's, it's an absolute myth. And if you are a person of color in this country, you live in a very different world. And because I've lived in a WASP world, um, I understand that to be true. I know it to be true from, from experience, and uh, yeah.
0: I hope you're enjoying this episode. Did you know that full versions of Sascape's can be downloaded or streamed for free from the iTunes Store, Stitcher Radio, and on SoundCloud? Feel free to leave us a review or star rating. And now back to the podcast. In reconnecting with your birth mom, did she ever get the chance to share with you what it what she went through emotionally, seeing you all taken away from her?
1: You know, my mother was very uh, reticent and quite uh, quite emotionally and psychologically, I would say, withdrawn. Now, she went through Gordon's residential school, and oh. yeah, it was a pretty bad one. And she really wouldn't talk about it. Um, my siblings said that she would, you know, she was a Cree speaker, but she would only she'd been trained not to speak it, so she would only speak Cree with her sister when they were, you know, imbibing alcohol. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so um, I can't remember the question.
0: Uh, did she ever had a chance to?
1: Oh, right. Yeah. So she was she was very, you know, she. She was a closed book okay. in many respects. Okay. You know, shortly after we were taken away, she started working at the Best Bureau cleaning cleaning rooms for. She did that for thirty years without a pension. I would add. Oh. and um, so she managed to you know she managed to kind of get herself together, and she worked so hard her whole life. Um, and so a bunch of siblings were able to go back to her, and and uh, and so that's a good thing. Um, but when I, so when I came back. Um of course I wanted to know what had happened and, and so I spent a lot of time with my siblings and they would tell me stories about about that time period and um yeah, just some of the challenges and how we would how they would react to, you know, sometimes the parties that would happen and that sort of thing. I mean it wasn't it wasn't sort of, you know, hugely out of control, but but enough so that you know she she went out one one day and someone reported that we were alone, even though you know my my oldest brother was twelve, like that's that's a you could take care of younger kids when you're that age and my my sister was you know I don't know nine or something and she was always taking care of me right? so I mean yeah there was so there was some you know bickers between adults that led to, led to our uh, involvement with child welfare. But, um, yeah, she, she was very reticent to talk about her residential school experience. The only thing she ever said to me was, well, it had some good points. And that's the only thing that she ever said about it. The other thing that happened with my mom is that, so she, she has three siblings, two, two older brothers and an older sister, and um, so when the Indian Act was changed in the 50s, because my grandmother had married a ostensibly a Métis man, he was actually, uh, would have been a treaty member of Pine Creek in Manitoba. But because she had married him and he didn't have in his status, then her descendants, so my aunts and uncles, my mom included, were considered to be non status and they were kicked off the reserve. So at the time, my mom was 14, her sister was 16, and then the two older boys were around 18, 19. And so what happened was um, my the two boys were adopted by uh, a grandfather on the reserve, and they, they actually changed their name and stayed on, on the reserve. And my mom and her older sister, they left the reserve, and they went to live in Panichai, where they started working in the, in the local hotel as chambermaids. And, uh, so my mom's sister, I guess, you know, raised her and then fairly young, my mother met my dad and, uh, and got married and started having babies. And so, um, yeah, she, she was pretty angry about that, you know, uh, and the reason that she would, they were kicked off the reserve was because her mother died. Mother died fairly young of cancer. I think I'm, I'm not sure what, um, but that was very, very traumatic for her. And so she she never went back to the reserve until, I think it was about 96, actually drove her back to the reserve because she was ill at that time. And uh, she knew that she if she didn't go, she wouldn't probably wouldn't have a chance to go back and see some of her friends and, and relatives down there. And so a bunch of us took a little road trip down and visited. And uh, she had a chance to visit with her childhood best friend and mm. Yeah, just kind of you know make her peace with that that experience. I think, um, but I you know I asked her too and about about you know the the adoption and the apprehension and all, all she said was that she would never signed anything and um, you know just what I already told you that she didn't sign anything and then she got this notice that she needed to come and appear in court and she didn't even know what that was all about. She didn't really she didn't really understand. Nobody explained anything to her, and so, yeah.
0: How much time do you get Mm. to spend with your birth family now?
1: Uh, We don't spend that much time together. I see them sporadically and, uh, you know, on on special occasions. Um, I have a brother that lives up north. He likes fishing and that sort of thing, and so he lives up in, uh, in, uh, in the north. And then I have a number of siblings here in town, and... Yeah, we, you know, I mean, I have a pretty busy life, too, and they do, too. You know, one of my sisters is a teacher, and so she's traveled around a bit, teaching in different locations. And so, um, yeah, we don't spend that much time together. We I'm connected on Facebook with lots of my uh, siblings and extended family, so that's great. Um, but again, you know, my life is pretty full. And, uh,
0: what, yeah. What's your connection with your adopted family now?
1: Well, um, it's probably about the same, you know, yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I also, I have a 10 year old daughter and so she's sort of the focus of my world, right. you know, um, but in terms of my adoptive family, uh, my, my father who became, my adoptive parents divorced when I was 15 and, uh, I was really happy about that because my adoptive mother and I didn't, we didn't c- connect and, uh. I found her her treatment of me to be highly questionable. And so I was very pleased when when she left our family home. And so I was, uh, she took my sister with her. And so my brothers were emancipated by that time. So I was just with my dad and we had a chance to develop our relationship. And he became my best friend. Mm. And um, he reparented me in, in lots of ways. He eventually remarried a beautiful woman who was, you know, I consider one of my now three moms. Um, And I probably have more contact with her than anybody. Um, My dad passed away from Alzheimer's in 2010. And so, um, you know, for the last 10 years, I would say I didn't, wasn't able to have much of a relationship with him because, you know, he wasn't really lucid anymore. Uh, But up until that point, we had a very strong relationship. I talked to him, you know, as, as regularly as possible, and he was very encouraging and Yeah, I mean, it's probably why I got a PhD is because I wanted to be like him. Yes, (laughs) that was good. I was greatly influenced by his worldview and and his approach to the world. You know, and of all the people in my life, he was the only one that ever said to me, you know, we had no business adopting you. Uh And he said, you know, don't get me wrong, I love you. And this was in one of our, we would talk about anything and everything. And in one of our conversations, we often talked about racism in later years. 'Cause I you know, as a teenager I wasn't able to articulate to him my experiences. But then as I got older, you know, and had dealt with a lot of it through therapy and that sort of thing, it just became easier to talk about. And so we would we would we would talk at length about, you know, well, pretty much anything. And and so when we were talking about racism, you know, he said he said that he he really disagreed with the whole program and he had been opposed to it right from the beginning. He said as a young, you know, as a young, younger man he didn't really have sort of the critical insight to understand how flawed that AIM program was. He said but he, you know he just knew that that white people had no business adopting indigenous children and that that culturally that there was something really really wrong about it. And so he, but my mother was insistent and you know and so she um you know, in recent years, I asked her, why did you adopt me? Because you didn't treat me very well. And she said, well, your sister needed a playmate. And this is just a few years ago. We were at Earl's here in Saskatchewan. I said, Mom, are you, you know, to you hear yourself? Like, you don't adopt a child to give your birth child a playmate. That's not the way it works. And she says, wow, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah get a puppy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. Get a puppy. <laughs> and uh yeah so you know that's just sort of to illustrate a little bit of the mm. you know issues that i was confronted with growing up in her, in her presence but um i love her and you know i know that she did the best that she could with what she had at the time and you know she comes out of a very sort of specific era as well and you know rural small town saskatchewan and yeah so so i i i have compassion for for her um but my dad, yeah, he was, uh, he was very insightful, and he, he you know, as, as he got older, he, he'd get more and more irate about the whole thing, and he said, we just, we had no business adopting you because as much as I love you, I couldn't t- teach you what it means to be an Indigenous child, and, and he said, I think that just really puts you at a disadvantage. And then he'd say things like, "You know, you've done you've done so great, and I'm so proud of you, and I love you, and you're so amazing and awesome and wonderful." He was always saying great things to me. It would embarrass me, but uh, he said, "You know, I'm just glad that you were able to kind of you know survive it all." Yeah.
0: You. So he influenced the education that you pursued, oh, which sure. is extremely impressive. You're. Thank you. are <laughs> a doctor of a social psych, of social work. Mm-hmm. You maintain a practice um, here as well.
1: Yes, a little well, bit? I, I have a consulting company, okay. so I go. You know, I'll do I do talks. I'm really interested in the whole area of lateral violence intervention and, right. and communications training. So I, uh, yeah, I do some some talks and workshops, and uh, and you know, and as I've learned more about indigenous knowledge, one of the other areas that really intrigues me is indigenous ethics and how it how it connects with you know. I mean, I was raised in the United Church, and a lot of it was pretty flawed just in terms of people's ethics and behaviors, but at its core, you know, in terms of, I feel pretty strongly about religious philosophies and that at their core, you know, there are some universal concepts that hold true, and these I see as being aligned with natural laws as I've been taught them by Sylvia McAdam, who's one of the founders of Island more. And, and it just it, it just intrigues me, um, the whole notion of ethics and how, you know, the laws that were given to the Cree people, um, are, 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 they're so profound and they guide, they can guide our behavior, you know, and our conduct with other people and how we, how we engage, engage with each other and the world around us. And, uh, and so, you know, as I learn, I share these things with other people and, uh, and, you know, I'm sort of uniquely positioned, I think, uh, because because of my upbringing, you know, I, I, I grew up in, in in one world. And then as an adult, I, I reacculturated to my indigenous world and, you know, started to learn from elders and attend ceremonies and uh, cultural events and that sort of thing. And so, you know, I've had that. That's one of the gifts I think that came out of the adoption is having those experiences and then sort of being able to stand in the middle and look at both and see okay what are the points what are the points of synergy here between these these two worldviews and I have to say there aren't many <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but the 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 place you know that space of spirituality which I see as sort of the core of religions. Um, is one of those places where there is tremendous synergy, yeah, um, and so that that interests me, and uh, yeah, and I was hu- I've been hugely influenced by my father because I've seen you know we've I think we've all seen where religion can be um, manipulated and used to cause tremendous harm in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but my father, you know, not only was he a spiritual man, but he was a religious man. And he endeavored always to walk his talk. And at times he came under huge fire because, um, because he held fast to certain ethical principles that are fundamental to you know, Protestantism. And, um, but that role modeling for me was, was pretty significant, And, uh, yeah, so, yes, he influenced me tremendously, yeah. And it was, you know, for me it was either uh, do a Ph.D. in social work or do a law degree, and I I have to say that I think social work was a good choice, for sure.
0: Your upbringing, compared to many others, seems quite fortunate when I have heard other stories that don't mirror yours as far Mm -hmm. as environment and educational Mm, opportunity. But I would ask this of you as well as your opinion of those who went through formative years in less than ideal circumstances, which then caused them to have very tumultuous teenage and adult lives. How, this is a sweepingly general question to ask you, but how do you move, how do you heal and how do you move through life not mm-hmm. being bitter and not expecting mm-hmm. an apology and would an apology ever matter or do it
1: mm-hmm. well you know'm uh, not expecting an apology i I hope to you know I hope to hear that that's going to happen because uh, the premier has has indicated yes. that that's going to happen and to me the apology isn't so much about you know sort of individually I'm sorry about what happened to you but it it's about acknowledging what we have all known to be true which was that this this whole program of of native transracial adoption in canada was funda- fundamentally flawed that the premises the the impetus for uh this this movement um was wrong and you know i i don't sort of expect the government to have a really in-depth critical analysis of you know how of, uh, you know, the economics of it or, um, you know, or a critical race theory of it. Um, but to, so to me, the the acknowledgement that a wrong was done, a wrong was perpetrated, uh, is, is so important. How does it affect me personally? You know, in terms of my personal experience, um, you know, I, I'm a pretty happy person now, but I almost didn't survive. You know, and that's the problem is that human beings, well, I don't know if it's a problem or the gift, human beings were really, really resilient. And what concerns me is when people say things like, well, you know, you turned out fine, so it had to all be good. Yeah. Well, it wasn't all good. You know, and so by the time I was a teenager I was extremely suicidal and uh, living in a constant state of post traumatic stress and hypervigilance and fear and anxiety and you know, I was institutionalized, I was on medication and you know, it was after that after that period where I you know, I, I made the decision that okay, I I'm gonna see if I can, you know, if I can do something about this and there would be certain junctures where I would meet key people who would support my my healing journey, and my dad was was you know he was sort of a a beacon of faith and patience and uh, and as I, you know, as I slowly started to internalize that yes he he did love me you know he loved me unconditionally it gave me it gave me a little bit of a you know a drive to want to. See what you know. See what I could do with, with my life, but also um, to deal with these ways of, these this pain that I was carrying. And so, as a young adult, I um, I started having some pretty, I think, serious uh, mental issues, mental illness issues. And a friend of mine, who is a friend to this day, said, "You know, Raven, you need therapy." <laughs> I was having very strange dreams and all sorts of things and so I started therapy you know I started therapy as a young adult and and really um haven't stopped it's it's morphed into more training now but I went through years of therapy and years of you know group work and and grief work and and that was essential was really really essential you know so it was like for the first 20 some years of my life i experienced turmoil and then for the next 20 some years of my life i you know i worked very diligently at healing and now i'm in this place where it's like oh phew i can relax now because it's all good you know it's all good and and yes i experienced lots of trauma and turmoil and almost didn't survive but you know with the support of of people over the, you know, the next 20 years, it was, it's, I've been able to see the gift of, of all of those experiences. And, uh, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy about that, you know? And, and that's the thing when, when I talk about this apology, it really needs to come with, it really needs to come with, uh, reparation. So that, you know, I'm, I, I've sort of been fortunate because, I've often been in a position where I've been able to access mental health services and, and have, those, have those covered, but a lot of people don't. And so, you know, for so many of my peers who are still struggling, it's like they need that. They need that support. They really need that support. So, yeah, all of our stories are very, very different. And I know, you know, I wrote in my dissertation that in some ways my story, it has some pretty, you know, pretty horrible parts but in the overall scheme of things, my story is somewhat mundane compared to some of the, you know, almost all of them, the participants to my dissertation research who shared their life stories with me. And I I marvel at how these people survived at this the resilience of the human spirit over you know living in those conditions of oppression. In context where you know it's supposed to be a nurturing context
0: well i would not call your story mundane (laughs) and i do not want to dismiss the the pain and the the period of growth you had to go through to get to where you are now but you are and I'm, I've only known you for an hour, but you're an amazing energy. You're, you. you're an extremely strong person, but um, a well, very real person.
1: You, one of the things that I you know it's, I really need to articulate is that the beautiful thing, one of the most beautiful things about being an adoptee is that, that most of us, you know, I'd say 98% reacculturate. And that's the gift in itself is that we have the opportunity to reacculturate to this incredibly beautiful uh, culture and identity. And that, you know, that's going to be the journey for the rest of my life. But within, within my culture, the, the knowledge and the teachings, when I was a kid, I used to have these different, I, I guess you could call them as spiritual experiences. And I didn't, have, there was no, you know, there was no way for me to be able to understand what those were all about. And I remember, as a young teenager, uh, I started having these dreams where Cree women were talking to me in the language. And when I told my dad, he he was worried I was developing schizophrenia. Later on, when I started to learn from elders, this one this one elder from uh, Ontario, Gladys Kidd, she's she's gone away, she's passed now. But she said uh, that's because at that time in life, Cree women are supposed to have their you know they're supposed to tra- they're transitioning from. Childhood to adulthood, they were trying to give you those teachings uh, that you couldn't get because you were in the wrong place, and uh, it was it was beautiful. So I, she gave me the teachings, and I, I uh, have learned more as I've as I've gone along, um, but it, it's it's such an incredibly powerful, uh, such an incredibly powerful culture, and and really beautiful. And sacred. And so that's where I've really, uh, that's really given me my strength and my, you know, any, any sort of amazingness that I have is because the ancestors have guided me. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah. What a pleasure to meet you. Okay. Yeah, I don't
1: know. I'm going to. Which translates to be all my relations. Thanks
0: for listening. The Sasscapes podcast is created and hosted by Kevin Power for SAS Culture. Funding to the cultural sector is provided through the Saskatchewan Lottery's Trust Fund for Sport, Culture, and Recreation. For more information, visit iHeartCulture.ca and SASCulture.ca. Music for Sascapes is provided by Saskatchewan-born singer-songwriter Jeffrey Straker. There's no end to the stories to be told. So, until next time...